welcome to Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli. And this is John Carson, the co-host. And today we are pleased to announce that we are welcoming as a permanent third co-host, Mike Gavigan. Hello, everyone. Great to hear and see you, and thank you for the opportunity. It is an honor and a pleasure, and thank you. It's great to be involved and uh, to be brought in as a, a permanent member is, is wonderful to me, so thank you so much. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at KISS Alive 2. Uh, before we do that, uh, do you guys have any music you'd like to share with the people? Okay, po uh, Poison is uh, the second song in the Little Wretches album. It's actually the one that... Um, for some reason, if you look at the iTunes schedules or the you know the little stars that they put at it, it's, or buy it, it's the one that's most listened to on the album. I don't really know who's picking that as their favorite, but um, it deals with um, uh, basically how everything eventually kind of goes wrong. <laughs> no matter whatever your best intentions are, things always seem to turn out for the worst. <laughs> and as a true Pittsburgher, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because something <laughs> will eventually just go wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> Coming when my own 
something gets into me, some kind of poison That I can't get control of myself You can't stop me now No, you can't stop me now No, you can't stop me now No, you can't stop me now You know, baby, I'm caught in a tailspin But I know how it's gonna end Are you gonna be there to pick up the pieces? continue with the Frankie and the Honeybees uh, theme so far. This is a track called uh, Thank You Girl. I believe it's the second track on the CD that was released uh, earlier this month. Um, it's, it's a great lyric and, and a fun song. And, and I think there's a difference between, you know, someone who's wearing their heart on their sleeve and someone who's you know, writing a, a lyric that comes from the heart. And I think Frank has sort of captured that in a sort of a song about a relationship and, you know, and a life that has its ups and downs. And for me personally, with the solo, um, I was originally thinking, since it's a three chord, you know, Tom Petty type song, I should try to, you know, do like a, a Mike Campbell style uh, slide guitar solo. But then I listened to some Jeff Beck from the early 70s and I found a few things where Jeff is doing some harmonized slide playing. Mm. Um, and I think it comes across here in a way where it almost sounds like a, a horn section in a way. But, you know, it's just fun to be able to have influences and put those to use in the studio when somebody throws a song at you. And uh, I'm glad to be on the track. And the song is again called uh, Thank You Girl. Oh, 
Christmas Day, New Year's Eve Gonna buy you what you want Give you everything you need One day when we grow old I hold your hand, touch your face Whisper in your ear Thank you girl for saving me How I always knew one day You'd be my wife to marry me You were always there for me Save my life Yeah, you save Awesome. And I'm going to keep playing Dame Fortune's Am I a Warrior until this election is over. So this is Dame Fortune, Am I a Warrior. <laughs>
Before we get into a live, too, I got to tell you guys on a, on a kiss related note, I just found out that there is a book called Kiss and Philosophy, which uh, just came out. Um, I just ordered it on Amazon that uh, basically is a bunch of academics that have taken a look at like the philosophy of of Kiss's attitude towards life and, you know, in-depth analysis of everything from the elder to uh, both the, the philosophical position of both Kiss fans and critics. So for all those people out there that say we're going into way too much detail, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> all right. And on that other note, my dad actually listened to our last podcast and wants to know why David didn't know automatically the song Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. It was a little before my time, Mr. Carson. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 <laughs> it was like, everybody knows that song. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I do, but I mean, I don't know if David would. And, and then he was like, well, David's just doing it because he assumes the audience doesn't know. And I was like, no, I think David doesn't really know Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. And he was like, really? So that was his big shock. But my dad is now counted as one of our listeners. Oh, right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so anyhow, Kiss Alive 2. Um, this is the bookend double album that uh, is the end of the classic Kiss era. Uh, a snapshot portrait of the band on top of the world. Literally the number one band in America. Uh, high energy, high octane uh live concert that in fact never happened as portrayed on the album uh in some ways it is even less of a true live album than kiss alive one was and we've already talked about how many overdubs were probably involved in making that happen but it also has five studio cuts and those studio cuts simultaneously hint at a bold uh heavy direction for the future of the original lineup and also show where the cracks were starting to appear with the use of increasing use of guest musicians to pull these tracks off. So without further ado, the band has reunited with producer Eddie Kramer and track one is Detroit Rock City. Which is a great opener. I always assumed it was, um, I, I assumed it was always their opener but I think I've seen them open with Creatures of the Night before and a couple of other things, but I always assumed that was the quintessential Kiss opener. Um, and they definitely speed up the tempo uh, from the other versions that they do, which I liked a lot as well. That's, all, that's one of the things I always like about the Kiss Alive albums is the tempo gets turned up a little bit, so it becomes a little bit faster and a little more exciting. Uh, absolutely. Fantastic opener. I mean, the minute you put the, uh, the, the needle to the wax, I mean, there's an energy you know, that is, you know, unmatched, in my opinion. And again, for me, this record, I'm, again, I'm honored to be in, involved in today's discussion because one, I know I'm a permanent member of the group, but two, because this is my favorite record. Uh, it was the first record that I ever bought, and I have the copy still to this day. I mean, the record comes out of both sides of the, the sleeve, um, you know, but <laughs> nice. I, literally uh, Sunday afternoon dinners um, at my uncle's house, I had a cousin that was a Kiss fan, and she just happened to have the record that day. I don't know if it came, you know, because it came out, I think, October 14th, right, in 77. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I think she might have just picked up the record, and she was playing, I think, track four. But then um, I heard the intro to Love Gun, which we'll get into later. But I was I was blown away immediately um, by, by just, you know, the sound of this thing. I need to know more about it. Um, but again, a great opening track. I did some research, too, 
Uh, since this this album was essentially recorded both um, in the April seventy seven shows in Japan and also um, at the LA Forum in August of seventy seven. And also, um, I know uh, Castaic, right? Or our uh, the I think the uh, the the Capitol Theater, Capitol Theater, in New Jersey. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. That's where it was. And wasn't there two from Budokan or something? Two of the tracks on there are from a Scraps Budokan live album. Yes, yes. Did you say there, yeah. Okay, um, all right. But again, to to John's point about the opener, yes, it is absolutely a great opener. I think they had opened on the Japan tour with Detroit Rock City. Uh, but at the beginning of the Love Gun tour, which was the tour they recorded, you know, uh, a portion of this record in Los Angeles, they originally started opening with Detroit City, and I Story Love was later in the set. Um, but then I think, oh, in, in August or so, early August, before they played the forum, the opener became I Story Love. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. just, I mean, amazing energy on this song. Uh, Paul's voice is, I mean, whether it was recorded, you know, in front of an audience live or if it was done in the studio, for anybody to sing the way Paul does, hats off to you. That is amazing vocal capability um you know and, and then again just the explosions like it's just it sets up great theater great drama and you know to capture that on vinyl is amazing now paul has already has said that those explosions they overdubbed actual cannons uh because the problem is live those those cannons are so loud that they they kick in the compressors and the limiters and the recording equipment so it actually sucks down the the, the sound of the explosions and they don't sound loud enough um you know, you have to assume that there's over, over uh, overdubs of the crowd and and all that going on. Um, it's it's interesting. You talk about your memory. I actually have a memory associated with getting this album as well. Um, I was trying to think the order that I got all of my Kiss albums in up to a point as I was kind of discovering the band. And I know I got Originals, and I know I got Destroyer. And then I think the next album that I would have gotten would have been Kiss Alive 2, and I was sick with the flu. And I think I had seen an ad on TV for Kiss Alive 2, if I'm not mistaken. So I knew, mm-hmm. it, I knew it was out. And I remember my mother was taking pity on me. And she said, I'm going out to the store. Is there anything I could get you? And I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, you could get me Kiss Alive 2. <laughs> and she did. So oh, thanks, Ma. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any memories of getting this album, John? You know, what's funny is actually my I never purchased this album. I don't think I've ever owned this album. The one time that I um, I think I only listened to your copy of it, David, um, and my only memory of it is taking it when I got uh, my iPod um, back in whenever the or whenever I guess 2000 what? Jack would have been three or four. So maybe like 2007, 2008, something like that. Um, I realized and I sold all of my um, vinyl records because we were going to make another room because we had a baby. And so I sold all my vinyl records and I bought a bunch of iTunes gift cards uh, with the money that I made from selling all my vinyl records. But at the time, I couldn't find, I, I actually wound up purchasing or getting a live two out of the library. Hmm. one of the fat boy CD case things and loading it into my iTunes and into my iPod. And I remember the fourth side wouldn't play Hmm. like all over and over again. It wouldn't play. And I was like, well, you can't really return this to the library. You know what I mean? And it was, (laughs) it was all, it was all like filthy and you know, that kind of stuff. And I was like, so it's, that's, that's my alive to memory is actually uh, listening to it at your house, David. And then also 
getting it out of the library with just a stack of CDs. I realized I could up, I could put everything, remake my vinyl collection to some degree, all via library uh, calls. You know what I mean? So I would get these mm -hmm. stacks of CDs after I would take Jack up to the, um, you know, up to story time. So and I remember like getting all excited. I was like, yes, two, uh, you know, alive too. I'm so excited. I'm going to go home and listen to this. And it was like all jacked up. It was all weird. So. Okay. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> at this point, they choose to recreate essentially the opening of Destroyer because they go right into King of the Nighttime World. Right. Which is, again, well done. Uh, I like this uh, speed it up, you know. Um, it doesn't sound as awkward as it does on um, Destroyer. You know what I mean? It, there's a little bit of a change everyone. I mean, it's a cool little segue in Destroyer, but in, um, it, it feels like it goes a little bit smoother for me, probably because, again, the tempo is so fast, there's not enough time to think about it. Um, but it goes, you know, again, I like the fact that the tempo is faster and that, you know, it's, it's almost a little bit cleaner. The buildup is a little different, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and Mike, I see you have your guitar out. Yeah, I was just going to point out, um, you know, great that, you know, they mimic the, the feedback that's on the studio version of King of the Nighttime War with Ace's sort of siren call feedback. Um, but I think this is a great example, too, of how well Ace and Paul work together on guitar because, you know, here, like Paul playing these um, suspended chords. Or, but they have Ace doing these things. I mean, that's just brilliant rhythm guitar playing between those two guys. Absolutely. Um, it fits together, like, in a pocket really nicely. Yeah. Um, but then again, uh, you know, it's, it's well recorded. It's a good version of that. I did some more research, too. And this is a question I want to open you know, to the group. Um, I, in, in the research I've done, I can't see anywhere where they played this song when they were recording at the forum. So um, it wasn't in the, the set in, in, in Japan in 77. Uh, because I think at that point they were, yeah, because I think they went from Detroit City to Take Me, uh, but then at the forum, I think it was I Story 11 to Take Me Again. Okay. So maybe, was it something that was recorded, you know, in you know, at the Capitol Theater, wherever they did, you know, the additional um, new material for, the, for this record? I don't know. Hmm, interesting. So this is yeah. another one that could potentially not truly be live, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, because I, I couldn't find any evidence of, you know, maybe somebody could prove me wrong, but I couldn't find any evidence of this being in the set during the, the shows that they recorded um, for this album. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about if I was an engineer trying to record Kiss in the 70s, because uh, I was especially thinking about how, uh, in my research, the most interesting thing was that they tried to record the live album in Japan with Eddie Kramer producing it after Rock and Roll Over came out, and it was actually rejected by the record label. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I want to know more about that. I want to know why it was rejected, because obviously they were able to pull at least a couple of cuts from it for this. Um, but I'd I, love, yeah, I'd love to hear it. I'd be fascinated to hear it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that... Uh, you know, the, the prospect of trying to record Kiss playing live in the 70s was pretty daunting, uh, only because the way that they used to mix those live shows is the guitars were way, way out in front, like way above 
to the point where the vocals were just barely able to cut through, you know, and there, there must have been so much bleed going into the, to the vocal mics and, and you know, and of, of the guitars just everywhere to the point where if you saw Kiss live before the Hot in the Shade tour, um, <laughs> you could be a minute into any song and it was it was like such a wall of white noise that you you know you'd be sitting there going is this young and wasted it could be fits like a right. glove i don't uh -huh. know you know i i mean it was re sometimes really genuinely hard to tell no matter how well you knew the material so you know you almost wonder if if their live sound had to be radically different for the nights that they were actually recording with mm. uh, eddie kramer because um, unless it's an off the board recording or it's a radio broadcast, you know, when you listen to bootlegs that were clearly done by some guy having a tape recorder in the mm -hmm. audience from this era, it is just, it almost, uh, almost unlistenable. I mean, it, it's, uh, I have, I had a bootleg of called Kiss Takes Tokyo that would have been from the Rock and Roll Over tour. And, you know, like it was interesting because half of it looked, sounded like it was an off the board recording. And then the other half sounded like it was some guy's micro cassette recorder in his pocket. And it was mm -hmm. virtually unlistenable. Yeah. Well, a lot of times those small recorders can't, yeah. Can't uh, sort out the sound or, you know what I mean? Can't so yeah, winds totally up sounding like overloaded, distorted. Right. And they just sound like washed. Yeah. Just ridiculous white noise. Yeah. But you guys bring up a, a couple of great points because I, I want to say that uh, is it not correct that I think all three of us attended the uh, '84 show at the Stanley Theater for uh, Lick It Up to, or uh, for the Lick It Up tour, right? Yes, 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 we did. Okay, and I remember that just Gene's bass alone when they tested his bass. I think I was in the 14th row. My hair went back. I mean, my yep. chest moved. It was oh my god, this is how loud this is going to be. And to your point, Dave, absolutely. I mean, sometimes they would play you wouldn't get to the second or third song and not not know what song you were hearing. Yeah, uh, but uh, again, I did some research on this as well, and it's interesting you bring this up because uh, one of the things that Gene had said to the uh, staff that were going to be doing sound for this tour, and this is quote unquote, you know, from the staff. I think it was Task or whoever it was. Um, they, Gene said basically, "Here's what we want as far as the sound goes. We want no one to be able to speak with anyone sitting next to them, and when <laughs> one of us takes a solo, it should be as loud as if we were all playing." Ah. And yeah. that was that was for which tour? That was for the Love Gun tour. Oh, for Love Gun. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so yeah. which was in the tour they recorded this record. But then you uh, mentioned if you're recording, you know, you got a live date and you're, you're going to record that for you know a potential release. Um, when they did record the show, when they did play in Japan, and of course, uh, I think part of these songs that were recorded in Japan would came out on what would have been the HBO special. I think it was the Young Music Hour, or wherever the title was. Yeah. But in Japan, from what I've read. There were restrictions in terms of how loud they could be. I think there was a cap at like 110 decibels that they could be at. Okay. Now, whereas like normally they, they, right? Yeah. Right, whereas normally they'll be at 130. You know, which, <laughs> you know, I, I personally love to, to know what a show sounds like these days at 130 dB. I'm never going to get to see that again. I know I saw it as a kid, but I would love to relive that. But point being, to your point, Dave, um, perhaps due to the restrictions. They had to play at a lower level, and then maybe that was one of the things that you know helped them decide well, where are we going to record this record. Why not do it here because we can't play as loud as we normally do. Who Interesting, knows? yeah. Um, funny you mentioned the Look It Up tour because I was actually uh, hanging out with the roadies while they were doing the sound check uh, earlier in the day, and I can tell you that they they 
actually did the sound check like much louder than the apparent sound of the actual concert because they compensated for the amount of sound absorption all the bodies in the room do. So like when they when you if you were actually out in the theater while they were, you know, going through and testing everything, like you couldn't even be in the room. It was so loud. It'd be a punch in the face. Yeah. To that point, too, the same person that was, uh, you know, sort of giving the quote about the Love Gun tour, uh, he also said that he basically had to mix as far back as he could in the house just because of the, the sound levels, um, which made it you know, harder to mix. But he said that if it was as loud where he was doing the mixing, imagine what the kids were like in front. They were just getting pelted uh, yeah. with sound. And also, too, on that subject, too, I'm just, I just get obsessed with the volume thing because it, it, it there's a whole... That separates, you know, the men from the boys in terms of can you, you know, how are you going to play a live show? Um, but uh, working with Mr. Speed, um, you know, Mr. Speed uh, had played uh, the gymnasium at Cadillac High School uh, where Kiss played in 75. And Rich and I had a conversation with uh, Coach Neff, who basically organized that event. And we asked him what it was like, you know, when they were playing in that gymnasium. He said it's basically like you're trying to swim upstream in the middle of a hurricane. It was, it, it was, <laughs> <laughs> but also because of all the pyro that they were using. Uh, you know, it was getting really smoky in there, so they had these windows at the top of the gymnasium, and they said, well, let's, you know, let's, uh, you know, vent some of this smoke out. Well, apparently, you know, the smoke started to go up, and people started to think that the school was on fire, and people called the fire department, and it was just the whole thing, so, yeah. But, nice. Yeah, but, you know, I, I had to know, because I know that what we saw in 1979 on the, on the Dynasty Tour was probably super loud, but you can't tell me they weren't playing louder earlier in the 70s, so great to know, you know, great description from Coach Neff about, you know, what the volume was like at that show, but, you know, another point being, too, um, on the subject of where they recorded this record, John, and you were mentioning you'd like to hear some of this stuff. But something I got from Dave a few years back, a few years, a few years back was um, on cassette and I found it on CD. It's a bootleg. Uh, but it's a thing called Kiss the, the Lost Alive 2 record. And mm-hmm. on it are tracks like I'll just read them quickly. Detroit Rock City, Take Me, Ladies Room, Do You Love Me, Making Love, I Want You, Got a Thunder, Cold Gin, Beth, Shout Out Loud and Rock and Roll Night. And then there are also earlier demo versions of the, the five, uh, or, yeah, which would be the five new uh, studio tracks as well. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's, it's, it sounds better than a bootleg. It sounds like it might have been taken from, you know, mixtapes from those shows. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll, okay. look, I'll look it up. All right, cool. So moving on, um, we kind of got off topic there, but <laughs> that's all right. Uh, ladies Room. Pretty standard, you know. I mean, it, it's not that different than the, uh, the album cut. Yeah, it's fine. It does what it says on the tin you know what i mean there's nothing different or new or exciting about it it's still good yeah i mean the thing that i noticed is there's there's a balance right there's five songs from each album uh <laughs> you know like paul is singing the majority but you know gene gets his five songs and 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 ace gets one and peter gets two so you know they mm-hmm. you know i it's funny because paul stanley talks about how, how they didn't want to repeat any songs from a live one and mm-hmm. so they kind of created this Kiss concert that never existed when they were as if they were playing an entire set of new songs from the previous three albums. And uh, and that brings up the point: Why didn't they include "Take Me," "Do You Love Me," and "Hooligan"? Because they were obviously playing those songs live at some point. And I, you know, the fact that they there's a misprint of a live two out there that lists those songs as being on the album leads me to believe that there's a version of the, of that album that was turned in that had those songs. Yep. 
and to that point as well, I think maybe some of the versions we're what we're on, you know, this kiss, you know, the lost alive two thing, you know, maybe in you know an unrefined form. Uh, but then again, too, with Take Me, they released that on the You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best uh, yes. compilation that came out in 96, which this, you know, according to this, lists that it was recorded before, which would have been around the time of, um, you know, the three shows that they recorded in August for the, for the record. Uh, but I, I, you know, the, the, and I'll just get to the point quickly, too. What I would, I think, you know, what KISS fans, would, let's say, expect or suggest, you know, the KISS dude isn't always so well received. Uh, but you know, if they're going to do a deluxe version of like Love Gun and a remaster of Destroyer, there's great potential for them to do a deluxe version of Alive 2 that includes all these songs. But not only the studio songs from uh, the middle three, if you want to call it that, the studio records, um, you could get versions of uh, Rock and Roll Night and Black Diamond um, and even Cold Gin, you know, that, or Firehouse, which were played during those shows. What a, you know, it'd be great to have a nice comprehensive full concert, you know. Set aside the, you know, the, the new studio tracks are recorded for live too, and give us you know the full thing. But you know we don't always get what we want as a, as a Kiss fan. Moving on, making love. Uh, better, actually, I like it better than the studio version for some reason. And I think again, it's the sped, it's the sped up tempo. Um, it was kind of a throwaway song for me the first time I heard it, but I like it. Uh, I like it live, and it, probably because it flows so well from "Ladies' Room" and then goes into "Love Gun." But that's. Uh, yeah, that, to be perfectly honest, I actually like it better than I liked it on the studio recording. Mike? Yeah, I, again, I, you know, I like the, the, what you want to call it, the, the, uh, the up-tempo you know, versions of the song, and they're nowhere near what would have been you know, the tempos they would play these songs in the 80s, uh, thankfully, so, uh, which was almost you know, undecipherable. But um, nonetheless, right. it's, it's, I love the fact that you get Paul's you know, just one chord, F chord, that comes in and it's, it's feeding back and you know, gives you the, the concert feel. Uh, again, it's, it's a great vocal, you know, take on his part, whether in front of an audience or in the studio. Um, but then Ace's solo, for me personally too, it's those pinch harmonics that he gets at the end of the solo. It's like cutting through. I mean, it's, it's amazing oh, yeah. Yeah. To, be able, to be able to do that accurately. Or if, he, if it was if it was unintentional, so be it. But it's it's a killer take on that solo. Um, and you know, the fact that you're bombarded with all this, you know, volume on stage and explosions, you name it, and you're playing that well, then. You know, again, hats off to the guys. Great, a great, great track and a great version of this song. You know, it's a funny thing about this song. I was listening to it on a live too, and uh, one point I, I didn't mention when we were talking about it on Rock and Roll Over is it's one of the only Kiss songs that actually where Paul is constantly changing perspective. It's almost like he's going in and out of an out of body experience because line to line the song is written either talking directly to the you know, a- ambiguous you, which is the female, or then talking about the female. Like it, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's odd how he changes perspective like that when, you know, he could have chosen one perspective of the, or the other and made it work just by changing mm-hmm. a word or two, but he didn't do that. So anyhow, um, and I, I, on that point too, Dave, I think this is something you brought up before when we've talked about, you know, Kiss and Kiss songs. Um, you know, what might have been you know, his intention with the lyric, you know, come on, baby, don't leave me sad, you're good looking. You know, sometimes, is he being sarcastic when he says you're good looking? You know, like, who's he trying to impress? Or who's he trying to you know, make feel better, him or the, the girl? It's, it's an interesting <laughs> I mean, delivery of that lyric. You know? Yeah, you're well, good looking. This is... The best I've had. Yeah, right now. <laughs> Right, yeah. So what's interesting, though, is that this is a co-write with a guy, with Sean Delaney, someone outside of the band, um, right? Isn't making, yeah, yeah. Ma- making Love is something he wrote with someone else. So maybe that's, 
Because I took it, that's funny, because when I first heard it, to me, it's kind of a weak song. I mean, you know what I mean? It's not like one of the greatest songs ever. Um, and may, because it doesn't feel fully formed, you know what I mean? It just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, and it doesn't. I don't find myself humming it or anything like that. And, and it's interesting that it is a co-write uh, with someone because, and from what I've read in Paul Stanley's book or whatever, because he was starting to essentially get sort of writer's block. So would you argue that it's a little bit of lazy writing on his part where he's just like, okay, well, Sean says it's cool. You know what I mean? This is what I'm going to work with. Well, it's that fine line that we talked about, especially with rock and roll over where they were going for immediacy and sometimes immediacy, you know, manifests itself in not necessarily thinking things all the way through. <laughs> right? I mean, right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, to be perfectly honest to me, it just, it, is a we it's not a i mean you know it's still better than 98% of everything else in the world but it's still kind of a weak song like it never i never get excited about hearing making love you know what i mean it never grabs um and i always thought maybe because it was sort of i i almost argue that it's lazy songwriting i mean even the title seems kind of cliche so i don't know fair point and to that point too about Sean Delaney i remember reading recently that i think it was during the time where they were going to Japan to you know, record, you know, the, the, so to speak, you know, Lost Alive 2 record. Um, I think there was a time where Sean was basically on a special assignment where, you know, one day he would write a song with Paul. And then said, okay, this day you're going to write a song with Ace. So then, you know, Ace oh, and no Sean kidding. wrote uh, Rocket Ride together, I believe. So I yes. guess he obviously had, he was utilized in, in special cases where if it was writer's block or if they just wanted to get a different perspective, it would bring him in um, and, and, and block out time for that to happen. No kidding. Um, okay. I didn't yeah. Know that. Yeah. Wow. Well, he was referred right. to as so the fifth educated. fifth member of Kiss. Supposedly, he was the yeah. guy that that worked with them on the back and forth shoulder rocking choreography and all that stuff. Um, oh. Yeah. There's actually he yeah. he has a really interesting book out. I think it's called Hellbox uh, yes. that he wrote, and uh, it's really an interesting look at at the whole Kiss story from his perspective. From you know, it's a little hard to find now, but you know, if you search the the internet, I'm sure you can judge up a copy. Um, from from the earliest days when they were touring in like driving around in like a station wagon, literally, and you know, trying to treat the boys as if they were rock stars before they really were, uh, up until the point where they parted ways at the end and things were kind of kind of ugly there. So. Okay. Yeah, essentially, you know, a key, you want to call it fifth member of the group. There's a funny quote where, Dave, you're mentioning the, the choreography, I think, uh, Deuce, uh, with the back and forth movements. I think there was a time where they were in rehearsal, and I think it was either Sean or somebody said, okay, guys, do the quote, do the status quo thing, because status quo would do something similar with the back and forth swaying. It was either Paul or Gina said, listen, you know, we're not quo, we're kiss. <laughs> so mm. enough with you know, the outside references here. We, we got this. We know what you mean. So. Yeah, but it definitely a key uh, component to you know the, well, the kids' okay. image in their songwriting. Right, and I always took the rocking back and forth. As later, I sort of figured that it was their version of Motown's, you know, ah. that kind of stuff, step dancing. That you know what I mean. I always, yep. it's, it's it's funny that didn't hit me until I, I broadened my musical whatever, and I said, yeah, this is just a bunch of uh, white kids aping an, a Motown move. You know what I mean, and sort of working with it. I mean, it, and it definitely has a. I mean, everybody does it, you know, I mean, everybody does that, that metal, you know, rock and roll, you know, <laughs> head banging thing. But I think it's a take on that whole sort of Motown dance moves and stuff like that, that come out of, you know, even further back than that, you know. Yeah, oh, excellent sure. point, John. Sure. Sorry about that. Um, 
And, you know, they, they were doing that, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but they were doing that early on. They were doing that, like, from the original, uh, you know, tour for, for when they were playing, what's that bootleg of uh, San Francisco that's in black and white? I mean, then they play Deuce. They're doing really, yeah. like, intricate choreography for that, um, you know. And, yeah. But the thing is that Bill Coyne actually was a TV producer, so he had uh, uh, a video camera, and they would tape their rehearsals uh, and tape all the choreography and then play back uh, and make them watch exactly how they looked as they were performing and then make adjust adjustments based on that, which was a whole other level of working on their live presentation that I don't believe a whole lot of other bands were doing at that time. Well, Motown was. I mean, if you read anything about Motown, that's mm -hmm. what they did. They they yeah. choreographed the hell out of those guys. And I mean, and that bleeds through even today in the type of music that we see, you know, these ornate live shows that other bands, you know, that pop stars put on. But I think, you know, I mean, come on, man, you've seen the commitments, right? There's a whole scene in the commitments mm -hmm. where they're teaching them how to dance on stage, aping the James Brown look. You know what I mean? Like, it's a it's a thing. And I, 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 I like. My biggest my biggest discovery of listening to all these Kiss albums is how much they're probably very much informed by Motown and the soul music of the time that was coming out right before they were doing what they were doing. But that's just, I, you know what I mean? That's my new, I've, it's sort of opened my eyes to all of it. But go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, with Kiss, because they were also playing their instruments as they were doing it too, I think it, it came down to things where like they're playing live. They almost never actually look at their guitars as they're playing live mm. right the eye contact is almost constantly between them and the audience right yeah and it's the the infamous yeah johnny ramone phrase for the ramones don't look at the fucking drummer when you're playing look at the audience nobody cares that you're grooving with anybody look at the audience you know what i mean if you see any ramone show that's what they do they always are yeah. looking out at the audience even though they're maybe standing still or even social distortion. They do the same thing. They make a point of like they're always looking at the audience and kiss, you know, does this does that as well. Absolutely. So moving on, next track, Love Gun. A great a killer riff. Nothing wrong with the song. I love it. <laughs> it's perfect. So so the interesting thing about this version is, and Mike, you showed me this years ago. Um, if you go back and you find the original track that they took this version from, um, one mm. of the things that they did is Paul Stanley live, uh, originally introduced this. He goes, you know, all right, we're going to play a song for you now. This one's off the latest album. It's called Love Gun. And then you, there's a pause and you hear two, three, four, da -da 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 right? Okay. And so yeah. in this version, they completely edit out the space between, yeah. all right, love gun! Da -da -da -da, and it's just like this military attack. There's no four count. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in between. It just, it gives it the illusion of being so incredibly high energy. It's like ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, and to that point too, even, you know, if you look at live footage of them when they, they play this song, you know, it's like songs like this in Christine 16, you know, where there's, you know, Paul introduced the song and he will do like a visual count to Peter, you know, and the fact that you can't tell me in all of that crowd noise and stuff that's going on, you could actually, you know, could he hear, could they hear each other? Or would he just do like a visual, like nod the head and one, two, three, and they come in, like you said, you said with military precision. It's amazing that they could do that and pull that off live. 
Um, but like like we said, you know, they cut out you know the three count, and so be this is what we get on the record. Um, but at, at that at this point too, in this song, because this was essentially the first Kiss song I ever heard. Uh, I remember my cousin saying to me, "Listen to this. You know, these drums sound like a machine gun." You know, and as a kid, I was probably like seven or eight years old. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and this is she was playing this thing on this old like you know cabinet, wooden cabinet, you know, console stereo systems that probably sounded like garbage, but it sounded amazing to me as a kid. Um, so so like, to all be my introduced, kids songs on. right? Yeah, I mean, before this, <laughs> yeah. I think I had Al- Alvin and the Chipmunks, and you know, Lord knows oh, yeah. what else I had. You know, Charlie Brown Christmas on, on on vinyl, but then. This was. I thought I need to do this. I need to get to the bottom of this. And yeah. this was essentially the song that catapulted me into that. And, but again, great take on, on the song. Um, you can tell that there's definitely some overdubbing with the, the harmony vocals. Mm-hmm. I'm not hearing a lot of Paul. I'm not hearing a lot of uh, Ace and Gene in terms of the background vocals on this one. Uh, I know they did live, but you know, you know, it, it was probably enhanced. But if it's so be it. It, it you know, it, it comes across as a great live performance of the song either way. Absolutely. So moving on then, I guess, to Calling uh, Dr. Love. Pretty similar performance to uh, the the album one. Um, you know, this is funny because the, the only version of the song that's markedly different is, not to get off topic, but the one that ended up on Double Platinum where they included mm-hmm. a bunch of like kind of like pitched down backwards recorded stuff happening there that, you know, kind of enhances it, I think. But this is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Again, does what it says on the tin. There's nothing wrong with it. I, you know, it's it's well done. It's one of my favorite Kiss songs, so I like it a lot. And the rap, you know, got rock and roll pneumonia. You know, <laughs> right, right. Can't go wrong with that, man. <laughs> no, you really can't. And Christine, sixteen, also not. You know, we're missing the piano and and all that. But I mean, essentially, it's very similar. I mean, Ace essentially plays the same solo twice on the on the outro. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and also to back to uh, calling Doctor Love. Oh uh, yeah. When it comes to the guitars, there are the rare occasions where Ace will take over uh, rhythm guitar duties and start a song. And calling Doctor Love live was one of those times. Uh, he okay. would start the rhythm guitar, and Paul would come in when the mm-hmm. band kicks in. So you know, interesting to know that that role can be you know traded off amongst the band depending on how they want to present the song. For sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, but on the on. Christine 16, um, I think on the studio version, there was a triple tracked harmony guitar solo. Uh, but when it comes to the live presentation, uh, because they obviously had one rhythm guitar and one lead guitar player, Ace used a thing called the Mutron octave divider Okay. Uh, in his rig, which gives the guitar basically an octave effect, which would sound like... his solo so you kind of get the, the harmonized you know effect and good to know that he was thinking enough to say well how am i going to present this song live when there were three guitars you know in harmony on the record well i got a, an effect that can help me do that yeah if i had that pedal i would probably play with that pedal on my on all the time i would never turn it off <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really cool yeah it's a great sound for sure um yes so shock me is now for the first time, we actually we get an extended version of the song uh, with that's extended musically, extended with Ace's solo, and Ace's solo for the first time actually features tapping, not the type of tapping that Eddie Van Halen was doing, but uh, Ace tapping, I believe, with his pick 
as he's playing mm-hmm. instead of his fingers. But you do have to wonder how much of that was uh, technique that, you know, ma- made its way to, to Ace into his rep- repertoire because of Gene working with Eddie Van Halen. I don't know. I wonder how much tapping was sort of a cultural phenomenon versus how much tapping was Eddie Van Halen pulled it out of the ether. You know what I mean? Do you think people were headed towards tapping? I think other people had done it in in limited ways up until that time. But I mean, nobody had had made it their signature sound in the same way that he did and made it so legato and Mm free-flowing and complex up until that point. Mm -hmm. Mike? Um, I... I've done a lot of research on the tapping thing. Uh, if you go back as far as there is a, a jazz artist, a guitar player named Jimmy Webster, okay, who was uh, basically a Gretsch guitarist in Dorsey, and he had, uh, at the time, was a, I'll, I'll get into it quickly, but he had a, a Gretsch White Falcon guitar that was basically a stereo guitar, which means the lower three strings would come out of, there was a, it was a basically like a stereo connection that would come out of the guitar and go to two different amplifiers. The low strings would go into one amplifier, the high strings would go into a separate amplifier. Wow. And if you buy the, the, the jazz uh, record, it's, it's hard to find. Jimmy Webster is called Unabridged, and on the cover, he's, he's got the White Falcon guitar Gretsch, and he's got the two amps. And if you listen to the record, it's panned in stereo. So you got this thing where the bass notes are coming out of the left and the treble notes are coming out of the right. But he had a thing that was referred to as the touch system, quote-unquote. And he would do tapping, whether that be just a single-note tap or a double-note or a double-stop tap. Uh, it's a great, you can look it up online if you, know, if you don't want to try to find the original copy. Yeah. Um, but that was back in the 50s. So Okay. Then push that as far forward as like, let's say, mid-70s, um, before Van Halen came out, uh, ZZ Top. I mean, there, there are things and examples where supposedly Billy Gibbons would do things with tapping like, you know, do that kind of thing. Uh, an example that would be like on Bad Nationwide. Um, and they used, to know, play with I, the, they used to play with the coin, right? A peso. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, he played the peso for sure. Yeah, in right. the early days. I don't know if he still does, but that was you know, the legend. Uh, but, you know, point being... He so better Ace, still pay with a place, peso. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, he supposedly likes his spicy food, and, you know, so right. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but, you know, point being, with the tapping thing, again, if you do the research, uh, Ace didn't start the tapping thing in, in this solo until uh, this, this leg of, of a Love Gun tour, whereas if you look at, like, the Rock and Roll Over tour... He was doing more just pull-offs like Angus Young would do um, in, uh, you know, whatever, you know, in, in, like Jimmy Page would do, but definitely just with one hand, you know, but the, the left hand. But he didn't add the tapping to this solo um, until, like, you know, very recently to, to the point where they were, they were going to be recording this record. I've never heard anything where he's been interviewed to, to, you know, where he's been asked, you know, where did you come up with the idea to do that? And, you know, did anybody introduce him to the Van Halen question to him? But yeah, the idea must have come from somewhere. But interesting enough to know that, Yes, you know, Eddie and, and most people that do finger tapping would use just you know, the right hand to tap, you know, the, the fingertip, whereas Ace did use uh, his guitar pick, but it still comes across in, in the same way. But interesting that you know, Van Halen essentially gets signed in 77, 78, and here's Ace doing finger tapping you know, at the same time. You know, clever, but you know, creative, you know, that he would embrace uh, a different style of guitar playing that he might not have done previously. Absolutely. Best Ace solo ever on this album? I mean, on any album? Uh, in terms of his acapella solo, if you want to call it that, I would say so. And for me, and you know this, Dave, you know, when you play live, you want things to be at a certain volume, you need to hear certain things. One of the things that I always do when I'm playing a live gig is if I can get that sustained solo, like feedback that he gets, then I, I know I'm good to go for the show. If I get that, you know, just sustained feedback, then okay, I'm good. That's all I need from the sound guy. You know, <laughs> let's go. Let's play the show. 
And, you know, thank you to Ace uh, for introducing me, so to speak, to, to feedback and, um, you know, just his bluesy, amazing style of guitar playing that really is, um, you know, underappreciated to this day. For sure. So now we go to a cut that is certainly not actually a live cut. And it, it's funny that you can you can really hear where they're trying to sell these as live cuts because they start playing the song and the audience reaction go, is, you know, just they go crazy. Right. Um, <laughs> but this is Hard Luck Woman. And this was recorded in the theater, not live. Um, you know, it's funny. They talk about how how they needed to do that this way because, uh, you know, Peter's vocals you know, he couldn't really sing the song live that well. But then again, there's a live version of Beth that sounds fine. So, you know, in the bootlegs of him singing Beth live, he sounds fine. I don't know. <laughs> I disagree. Really? I've never liked his vocals on Beth. I've, I've heard live bootlegs on YouTube and things like that, and it just sounds like he's, you know, gargling with gravel. But Well, sometimes he has trouble hitting that high note at the end. You know, but I mean, in, yeah. in general, I don't I don't think it's it's not like it's not bad. Um, two songs in a row that are not live. <laughs> uh, right. We've got Hard Luck Woman. Anything more to say about that one? Uh, for me, I think it's just interesting. I think they did a slight rearrangement of the song. I think they might have uh, shortened up like the second chorus or they might have changed you know, some of the if you want to call it, like a bridge after the, the choruses. You know, it's a slightly different arrangement. Um, but at the same time, you know, talk about different styles of guitar playing. Um, there is sort of like, you know, the, the major, uh, it, it's, it's almost like, you know, cowboy guitar. Like we were playing more like a major scale type thing. You're not playing, you know, like pentatonic blues. Um, there's a lot of sort of like country-ish, you know, stonesy guitars that are going on from guitar, right? Which I think is ace. Yeah, I think with, so. You know, the, the, the climbs up the neck. And, you know, that's an interesting thing because that's not really something, I mean, they do a little bit of that in, um, the pre-courses to, to got to choose it, but you know, playing on top of the chords, if you will. But again, you know, credit to the fact that you've got two distinct styles of guitar playing going on in this band, and they always find a way to, to have that come across. And to, to, to hear them play this way was sort of groundbreaking for me because then I realized there is more just playing power chords and just playing the root and the fifth. There's, there's, you know, just these lines you can play. They're just maybe two note lines, you know, two note chords that really add so much to to a song. Yeah, um, it's it's fun to investigate that and learn from that and use that later on, you know, when you're writing your material. For sure, Paul's essentially just kind of picking through the chords, um, you know, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, just it forms kind of a background wash uh, mm -hmm. to the song that allows Ace to really get out there and be really creative with his accents and the parts that he's playing. Yeah, and, and even I. Uh, I sat with guitar players before uh, when it was Richard and Mr. Speed earlier and we were uh, playing together. Just to hear what Paul's doing on, on this track individually, if you, you know, just pan it left, it's it's really hard to hear what he's doing, but it's so essential to, you know, to the support of, of the song the way it's presented live, but it's really hard to figure out what he's doing there because it's so, it, it becomes a wash, but it's all, it, because it's really subtle, but, you know, there's a lot going on there and it's, to this day, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what he's doing there. Hmm. Okay. Tomorrow and Tonight. Um, I would say there are at least three Paul Stanleys singing at one point on this song, maybe four. So, you know, the idea that this song is in any way live uh, is is uh, pretty much non-existent. Right. It's definitely recorded. It's uh, 
And what's funny, I never liked this song. I don't know why everybody, except, you know what I mean? There must have been something else they could have put on in place of it, you know? But I, I just don't like the song that much. And to spend all that time, I mean, I guess they had to fill out the album. You know, they had to have stuff from the first three albums to do it. But still, I never I never really particularly liked the song. And it, and it seems almost like a uh, almost like a lost cause recording or whatever. Oh, well, I, love, I guess I love it. <laughs> you love that song, really? Yeah. Good. Oh, all right. Yeah. All right. Hey, I never really. It wasn't necessarily a favorite of mine, but I've been listening to it, you know, for the last week or so and revisiting it. And um, you know, the, the live version and the version on um, Love Gun, you know, it, it's refreshing to hear it again. I'll say that. Um, you know, is it a strong song? Yes or no? I you know. But I think when you look at it this way, sure they could have included "Take Me." Um, or, you know, or do you love me, you know, and put that a live version of that on, on the record. But in this case, because it's from Love Gun, it's the most current tour, you know, they already had I Story Love there and Love Gun. Maybe they're saying, you know, we need to pull another track from the Love Gun thing and, and get that yeah, on yeah. the record. Maybe that's what the decision was there. I don't know. Um, well, you know, isn't it five songs from everything? Five different, you know, five from the three. So they're trying to keep it even somehow. Yeah. Now, if it's any consolation, Paul Stanley has actually said he doesn't think it's a great song. So he kind of agrees with you, John, but. <laughs> yeah. Right on. So, <laughs> well, to give me a, why do you like it so much? Well, I, I've already said when we're talking about the studio version. To me, okay. uh, to have one lyric uh, okay, that, that's, right. yeah, that says, "Listening to your teacher, bosses, and your preacher ain't never done nobody good." Uh, in one rock and roll lyric to destroy the three major pillars of civilization, <laughs> uh, you know, how how do you get better than that? I, you know, I like yeah. the whole idea of, you know, we're headed for the city again. You know, the whole, I, I mean, you know, the whole thing about, uh, you know, take you to the cellar, let me be your fella, I'm going to teach you something new. I mean, it's just got such swagger and attitude. All right, okay, all right. All I right, mean, yeah. I can't help but love it. So here's a song that I think is also probably not live, um, that they but they were playing it live on the tour. Um, in fact, they were opening with it, which is probably at least my theory as to why this is probably not live. Because the first song, everybody's getting their levels and whatnot. And I bet you that when they recorded this live, they didn't have the best levels. I believe uh, this was done in the studio. Okay. I stole That's your love. I'm willing to buy that, actually. Yeah, and, and was again, it, that I was the standard opener, right, on this tour, or no? Uh, the tour started with them opening with the Detroit Rock City for only a few shows, and then I Story Love became the opener. But at the, t the time of their opening with Detroit, uh, I Story Love was in the set; it was just later in the set. Uh, but to your point, Dave, about you know whether or not you get the best take you know, when it's your opening song, you're, you're going live and you're recording a record. I did find something somewhere you can't believe everything you read online, uh, but supposedly this was one. You know that they recorded definitely in you know any of the sound check that day, or it was in when they were recording the uh, the, the the remaining uh, new songs for the record. Yeah. No, I believe so. Especially if you listen to Paul's vocals on this song, they're a lot fuller in some yeah. ways than they are on on some of the the other tracks. You know, his voice is not quite as raw. Um, 
So, yeah, three songs in, in a row, not live. Sure. And then, too, interesting that they didn't include, which would have occurred um, since they opened with this song uh, when they played in Los Angeles uh, at the Forum, um, there would have been explosions at the beginning right. of the song. Right. right. And they're not on the record, correct? They yeah. are not, right. which is another reason to suspect that, you know, and maybe another reason why they didn't want to just duplicate the same explosions that would kind of would have been redundant sounding after you have Detroit Rock City with them. Absolutely. So, okay, Beth, kind of live, karaoke, the way that they used to do it, essentially, um, which is always somewhat disappointing. You know, you, you would think at some point in their career they could have, like, had a live grand piano going on for the song or something. I know they did, like, Kiss Symphony, and they played yeah. the keyboard parts on a synthesizer, which was also disappointing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but it, you know, it not that Kiss would would have done a show that that had two ballads in it at this point in their career, uh, but they couldn't have done this album without their biggest hit to date on it. So we get another version of Beth. To me, it's not Kiss, so I, I usually skip over. To be perfectly honest, it just I know it's their biggest hit, but I never really particularly like the song. It's a little shorter than the Destroyer version, right? Isn't the, oh, really? there's an instrumental break that's cut down a little bit, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, there's like that interlude that happens about three quarters of the way through the song, and I guess you know, rather than have Peter you know sitting on a stool having nothing to do other than just you know wait for that to, to pass by, I'm sure they say, okay, we need to make make some edits here and, and cut that part out. Um, yeah, but there are uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, when you're doing research for you know a Kiss tribute band, you find lots of things you know on cassette or CD in terms of bootlegs. Uh, there was uh, a version in the bootleg circles, a just the instrumental track of this song, uh, you know, obviously with no vocals, that had that section of the song taken out. So whether or not that was taken from you know, the reels that they would use live, I don't know. Mm. Uh, but I know that in the early days when I was in a Kiss tribute band. Uh, we would use that bootleg and play it through, you know, a cassette player through a PA system, so our Peter Chris could, you know, sing the song. So essentially, we had a good representation of the track, you know, for our Peter Chris to deliver that song live. Wow, that that's cool. Yeah, uh, I think it's a good version of the song, and I think this is also one of the ones that was taken from uh, the recordings they did in Japan. Yes, um, because I I do think on the again the Kiss Lost Alive too, it sounds very similar to the version that's on on this CD. Yeah, so. If that points to where it came from, you know, if you're interested in knowing that, uh, that's where it is. Okay. And now we get just the hint of a bass solo uh, at the start right, yeah. of God of Thunder, which is pr almost, not quite, pretty close to the tempo uh, of the original Paul Stanley demo as opposed to the tempo that they played it on Destroyer. Yeah, it's like a runaway train. I love it. It totally rocks that way. And I wish they had, I mean, I know that when the, when we saw them, whenever we see them live, this is where he usually does the solo, or is, it, is, is this where he, like, doesn't he also spit blood at this point? Isn't this the normal, the spitting blood? Yeah, usually he kind of simultaneously will play the bass solo, as such as it is, and then spit, and spit blood as he's doing it. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I was a little dis, I mean, again, I haven't listened to this album in, like, years, and then... I, I was expecting like an actual bass solo, and there wasn't. So, I mean, yeah. it was noisy. I like the opening. You know what I mean? It's right. Like, well, to be fair, the bass solo that he was doing then was largely kind of effects and noise and delay right, yeah. and you know, mm -hmm. kind of a lower harmony thing going on. Um, harmonizer. So, 
Also, we get another Peter Chris drum solo, not quite as extensive as Alive One, which is probably for the pacing of the album a good thing. Um, but you know, it's uh, it works. Yeah, yeah. Probably, was he was he a stinker about it? Was he like, you got to put in my solo or I quit, like he wasn't Alive One, or was he like, I guess because I have Hard Luck Woman and Beth, I'll take the take the the shorter drum solo. You know what I mean? I don't. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't heard any stories of him complaining well, or issuing ultimatums about this one, but. Well, OK, on, on the subject of drum solos, then we, we know it's well known fact that uh, supposedly there was a drum solo uh, that was ready or was recorded for uh, Strange Ways and Hotter Than Hell. And yes. I guess the deal was, you know, drum solo out, you know, that became you know, an issue back then, supposedly. Uh, but again, if you look at uh, bootlegs uh, from you know, this Love Gun tour, um, comparing the solo to the, you know what was on the live record, yes, it's definitely shorter. But I think that might have been by design. If you see the footage of them playing live, the solo isn't quite. It's the solo he's playing on this tour was definitely shorter than what he was playing on uh, the live era tours. Okay. Um, but again, too, you know, from a musical perspective, again, from the tribute perspective, both the solos on live and live two, the drum solos, there are so many classic signature licks that you know Peter does on the drums, and they're 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 vastly different on each record. So you know, and all those, if you play those in front of an audience, they immediately pick up on that as if it's its own song, its own melody. You know, yeah. and people respond to those because they know them so well. Um, you know, again, and, you know, good for Peter to uh, use certain influences. I think um, you know he obviously has his influences when it comes to jazz drumming, but I think he utilized that you know for his solo and was able to present that in a way whereas he wouldn't necessarily do that in a, a song structure. You know, he could do like licks and things that were you know fancy or you know impressive or you know. Part of his um, education and background comes in music. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here talking about Peter's approach to the drums and his drum solos. And I'm going to say that Peter Chris was never a huge fan of hard rock or heavy metal. I think that he always saw Kiss as a means to an end to be a successful musician and be a rock star and whatnot. And I don't think that that's a bad thing because... You know, I think at the, at the end of the day, if you ask Gene and Paul and Ace what some what your favorite music is, you know, they would say not necessarily only hard rock and heavy metal, but that they genuinely loved that kind of music, that they genuinely loved bands like Led Zeppelin. And, you know, they appreciated Black Sabbath and Alice Cooper and Slade and things right, like right. that. Ace's album Origins or whatever sort of shows us that. So yeah, yeah, I don't think that Peter Chris did. I mean, there there are quotes from the early days of him joining the band saying like, "Well, you know, I don't really like this type of music that much, but you know, Gene and Paul seem like they have their act together, and this could be my best shot." So, oh really? Huh? Yeah, I. But I think you know. I mean, I I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it actually lends Kiss a lot of, uh, you know subtlety and, and makes their music that much more interesting because you have a guy that has these influences like Gene Krupa and other and other jazz stuff, you know, bringing it to Kiss in a way that if a guy that was just a fan of Led Zeppelin or, you know, Black Sabbath wouldn't necessarily be able to contribute. Absolutely, Dave. Yeah. And to that point, too, um, you know, if you look at you know, just his shuffle beats, uh, like on, on Detroit Rock City, and, and the way the snares that are playing with the, the hi-hat, uh, you know, 
a cop, you know, let's say tribute bands, you know, they, they'll mimic that in a way, but no other drummer that has since been in Kiss after Peter quit has ever played some of those uh, drum rhythms, you know, the same way that Peter has. You know, they've come close to put their own spin on it. But when you hear Peter play it, you know, there's definitely that comes from somewhere, and that's that's his sound, and that was a key component to the Kiss sound uh, from the get go. And to your point too, Dave, about him, him you know, basically just seeing this as a vehicle to, to move forward, you know. In a professional way, I, th- I believe his Rolling Stone ad that he placed was a you know, drummer willing to do anything to make it. Yes. I don't think he was listed as a rock drummer being willing to, to, to do anything. It was basically a drummer willing to do anything anything to make it. And you know, right, yeah. Went, bring me on. So. Yeah, I'll put the makeup on. I'll be a cat. Right. Just let me go. Right. On. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. do you want me to do? I'm Harriet Rose on a stool and sing about my wife. <laughs> um, well, that is interesting because a lot of the background that I hear about Peter Chris, but, but again, my research that goes into these podcasts starts with the Paul Stanley book, you know, that is on audiobook on YouTube or whatever. And he eviscerates Peter Chris. I mean, he basically was like, we wanted a Led Zeppelin big drum sound and Peter Chris couldn't deliver it. You know, we wanted John Bonham and we got, you know, and so it's nice to hear, you know, now that you are pointing this out, yeah, he's a much more complex drummer than really they gave him credit for, I think, um, and what he could deliver. Good, sorry, yeah. The other thing is, as you guys all know, from years of playing in bands with, you know, different lineups and, and members coming and going, um, one of the truisms about playing in a band is you can replace any guy with another guy who may be technically... 10 times better as a musician and inevitably there will always be at least one thing that the musician that left the band contributed in terms of how they played a part or in in one song that the new guy just cannot do as well there is some aspect of their personality that shines through and i think that's that's definitely true of peter chris you know, you can argue that Eric Carr and Eric Singer are technically much more advanced and better drummers, but there are definitely things that Peter Chris could do that they can't. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because if you look at, you know, Kiss's advancement you know, through the years, you know, Peter basically started out with was essentially like, you know, like a five or six piece kit, you know, with, you know, bo- top and bottom, you know, drum heads. This might be getting technical. But by the time of, you know, the Love Gun Tour in Life 2, I mean, he's got you know a ton of drums uh, now that it, that he's expanded his kit with, and also too, I mean, some of those rack toms are huge. They must be 16, 18 inches deep with no bottom heads, which must have been incredibly loud. And I think he was using a marching snare at the time, which is you know something that was you know really unheard of in those days of rock drumming. And I think he might have even had um, some other like you know bass drums or floor toms set up as like. Like a bass drum set is like a floor tom. So he was definitely, let's say, a jazz-influenced drummer who embraced the rock sound. Because when you think about how loud they were playing back then, you know, somebody who's settling into jazz is, is going to be like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, so for him to walk into that boldly and adapt, if you will, is uh, something that deserves credit. But also, too, when you look at his drumming on um, the Chelsea album, which was a band that he was in before he was in Kiss, you know, it's... The drums are nowhere near as you know ballistic as they are on Kiss records, you know. Right. And it, it's almost like they, they're buried in the mix in a way. And you know, but if you know that, like you know, you could record now in '71 and go to, you know to '73, and you know, is is this what we're hearing on these Kiss records the true Peter Chris that needed to come out? Perhaps. 
interesting point about the the uh, marching snare drum used. I did not know that. Um, yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, and it's funny when you talk about uh, the band he was in before. There's actually a song on that album called Hard Rock Music that isn't hard rock music <laughs> at all. Um, you know, it's kind of like Grateful Dead-ish, kind of folky, whatever. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I, Dave, I think I, have, I think I have your copy. I think you do. Of Chelsea, yeah. Chelsea album. Oh, yeah, I, bought, I bought this at a record convention or a record show in Pittsburgh uh, in the 90s. Um, so it, it might have made its way to a local uh, vendor. And, you know, there you go. Thanks, Dave. I don't even remember what I paid for that, but I know it was way, way too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought you bought it at Odds. No, I was at some record show and uh, I don't know what it, it Did I pay 100 bucks for it in like 1980s money? Uh, probably. Yeah, it was 100 bucks. It was in the 80s. I remember you buying it. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, that's funny. Um, moving on. I want you. Um, different arrangement than the, the album version, especially the intro is. Um, Paul's kind of picking his way through the chords. There's none of the uh, the intricate playing that that is on the album. Who wants to go on stage with an acoustic guitar? Period. Or who wants to play an acoustic guitar? Period. Really, in my opinion. But you know, to play an acoustic guitar on stage in front of an audience and then get switched to electric—that must have been you know just about yeah, impossible. Yeah, yeah. Unless you were Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. Uh, but you know, clever use of you know Paul going from you know a clean sound to a dirty sound. Uh, um, still presenting the song in a way that's similar to the, the you know, that was on the, the studio record. Well, there's always that. You know, I think it's a good version. Guys stomping the pedal to go from the <laughs> clean sound to the dirty sound, where there's like right. the eh, and then he's just and then it's like that. Yeah. So they they go around that I think by just leaving him distorted for most of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, he just does. He controls all the sound with uh, his volume knobs on the guitar. Right. And we get a little bit of a call and response slash vocal solo from Paul at the end, which is interesting because you can hear his voice uh, when he's doing the vocal solo. He's singing in a completely different way than he would be singing, you know, say, 10 years later. Again, referring back to the, the Lost Alive 2 recording, um, I, I, this one I think might have been taken from the Japan shows uh, because his vocal sounds similar to what's on, on that CD that I pointed out. Uh, but it's the power behind his voice again is amazing. You know, that you can sound that thick and that full and, you know, on pitch, you know, and, and just that good is amazing. The guy just, you know, they're great rock singers that get so much more praise and credit, you know, than uh, than Paul did over the years. And, you know, I think maybe finally he's starting to get, you know, that appreciation, appreciation that he deserves. But, you know, just, you know, to have to sing something like that, I mean, is superhuman in a way. Hands oh, yeah. Off to Paul. I mean, he's he's definitely he's not doing any of the sort of nasal stuff to get up high. He's it's full throated coming from his chest. He's belting it out. Yeah. Uh, but on the, uh, the you know the, the vocal um, you know acapella part that you're mentioning, Dave. Tell me what you think about this because I was listening to it this morning. It's a little confusing in terms of structure, in terms of what the audience is supposed to do. Because on one hand, he starts saying "I" and he wants the audience to respond "I right. want want," and then. What you're supposed to automatically know that the next line is you. You know, it's like you point to the audience, and be like you, meaning like this is what I want you to say. It's it's, it's a little confusing, <laughs> right? Well, he, he kind of phrases it in a question as an "I want." You know, uh, his voice does go up a little <laughs> bit at the end, but I I bet you there were probably some people in the in Japan going, um, "I want." <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
and on that, that subject too, it's it's funny if you listen to it. I don't know if you noticed it, but on the Alive Two version, uh, there is what I call the whistler. There is a guy that's whistling back the the call and response. Okay. Like, I can't I can't whistle. I'm not Axl Rose or you know whoever. But uh, he's basically you know responding back with a whistle. And I wonder if that was something where you know the guy was standing in the audience mics at the show. Or if that was, you know, like a joke in the studio, Eddie's like, "Hey, well, it'd be funny if we had a, you know, a guy whistling in response." Interesting. I'll have to listen for that. It's there. It's there. Just Trolled by the response. whistler. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he, should, he probably said I should have gotten credit on the record, you know. But uh, you know, either way. Right. But the point I was, point I was going to make about the, the the change in structure of the song, it's interesting after the second chorus, where on the studio version he goes right from the second chorus into Paul's playing guitar solo, whereas on the Alive Two version. He stops and plays. For two bars, and then he does the guitar solo. Is that something where he's sitting on need a bar or two to, you know, to get acclimated from going from a vocal into a solo? Who knows? Hmm. But it's a noticeable difference between the studio version and the live version. Nice point. Okay. Okay. So, album closer, essentially, for the, the live portion of Kiss Alive 2. Uh, Shout It Out Loud takes the place of rock and roll all night as the closing party anthem that it was always intended to be. Yeah, I've, it's always been one of my favorite songs. Uh, it works well live. I mean, I always, I wish Shout It Out Loud would replace rock and roll all night, but that's just because I'm, you know, I'm so sick of hearing rock and roll all night um, everywhere I go. So, and I think it's, I honestly think it might actually be a better song rock and roll all night but again it's because i've heard it so much i mean i like the sort of community ethic of it you know tell everybody in your neighborhood you know and that kind of stuff so that's it's what i always like about it absolutely mike yeah it's uh, you know when it comes to really really great kiss songs and there are a bunch of them but this is definitely one of them um i think this is an ezra co-write if, if i'm not mistaken yes um, you know, again, is, yeah. but mm-hmm. Just the fact that, you know, the song is, is great in terms of musical structure, but the lyrics are also so great, you know, and it just personalizes it. You know, it makes you feel like you're part of the song right. and, and the show when you sing along to it. Um, but it's interesting, too, that, you know, on, you know, where the album where this song came from, Destroyer, there was a lot of harmony guitar stuff going on. And it starts off basically with, with each guy playing a different note. I and mean, the bass line is doing a certain thing. Ace is doing a note. Paul's doing a note. It's just basically three individual guitar notes that are being played at the beginning of the song. With bends. Huge. Yeah, yeah with bends. Yeah. And my brother, oh, it sounds yeah. huge. Yeah. It mm-hmm. sounds huge. And I love the fact, too, that as a, an album closer, if you want to call it, you know, you know, the closer of this, you know, this concert, if you will, the fact that when you listen to the recording, and maybe this is done in the studio, the ba- it basically doesn't end on a note. It ends on an explosion. Uh-huh. There is no final note that's played on, on this version yeah. of the song. I, to me, that... That makes me smile. That takes balls, you know. Okay, you know what? Here's how the show ends. Okay, listen to this and then come see us on the next tour. You know, this is what you're going to get. You know, it, it, I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And even though I didn't see them on the uh, the Love Gunner Live Two Live Two tour, um, I did see them on Dynasty tour. And, and thank goodness that I did. You know, because this is the album that basically introduced me to that. And I'm thankful and appreciative appreciative for the fact that this album exists and it got me into playing guitar and making music. Absolutely. Now, and it's probably worth mentioning too that. You know, much in the same way Kiss Alive 1 was uh, a souvenir, almost like a tour book. This album, when it originally came out, you had the double gatefold album uh, that had a stage shot where they're basically letting off all the pyro and all the fire and Gene and Paul and Ace are up on lifts. 
um, and Peter's drum set has levitated. And it's one of the classic, iconic uh, kiss shots of all time. Um, so you have that as, as kind of, yeah, there it is right there. Um, Amazing. I, I'm sure you've seen there's that f Facebook meme floating around, like no band in the history of music will ever top this. Um, <laughs> and you also got the, the booklet, The Evolution of Kiss. And if you had bought the original, uh, there was a tag, you know, a piece of paper printed on the, on the outside of the album that said, plus a special surprise from Kiss. And that special surprise, of course, was the Kiss tattoos, which Mike is showing us all this stuff. Do you still have them? Why have you not yeah. them all over your body yet? Well, let me tell you, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just interject with this story. When I got the record, finally, I got the tattoos. And at the time I was going, I was attending uh, Catholic school. I might have been in, I don't know, third or fourth grade. Um, and so I decided, well, I'm going to you know, get up in the morning and put all these tattoos on my arms. I put the whole set of tattoos on each arm and I walked into school proudly displaying my kids' tattoos. Immediately, when I got to school, one of the nuns said, Michael, go to the, the restroom and wash those off your arms right now. And I, I, I might have had them on for a fresh, you know, 45 minutes that day. And that was that was the extent of my advertising, you know, the special surprise from Kiss. So I try, guys. <laughs> I try. But that is a great story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure God totally forgives you now. <laughs> you know, I, I, w I wouldn't think so. You know, I, if I if I survive Catholic school, I can survive anything. So you know, I paid my dues. But in the no, most, God's got a great surprise. Man, he's kept him around this long. There you go. There you go. All right. So you turn over side three to side four, the uh, studio side. Paul has said that there were, the label wanted them to do it. He only had one new original song to contribute. Um, but I would actually argue that on the whole, overall, uh, these songs finally achieved with Eddie Kramer what they were trying to do by recording in a theater uh, with Rock and Roll Over, which is that they mm -hmm. finally got a truly live sound for new original material. And I think these songs overall sound competitive uh, with a lot of the hard rock that was coming out at the time, like ACDC, like Van Halen, in a way that maybe some of the material on Love Gun and Rock and Roll Over doesn't. And I think part of that is the production. Um, and I think because Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun are so dry sounding and so in your face, um, but they were recording this in a theater that, uh, you know, presumably had some natural reverb to it. And you can hear that on the drums. So I think it forced Eddie Kramer to mix these songs in a way that he probably wouldn't have if they had been just recording them in a studio. I'll buy that. I, I agree. And it, it comes across in a way that, you know, even though it's, it's edgy and you know, it, it's got attitude, it, it comes across in a comfortable way, not like, oh, these are, you know, just demos or soundcheck songs that we had, and, and, you know, they're unrehearsed or, or not polished or not structured. I mean, they come across really, really strong um, in a tuneful kind of way. Um, and just, you know, if you want to go on the on the, the the way they record it, it definitely sounds like it's recorded, you know, in a live theater. I mean, those drums sound huge. Yeah. Um, and the, the guitars are, you know, crisp and in your face, too, and the vocal delivery is, you know, fantastic on Paul's part, too. You know, I mean, again, if this was, you know, one of the only original songs I would ever write. I'd, I'd be very proud of this song, you know? Oh, definitely. Uh, 
But you know, at the same time, when you you know, as a kid, when you listen to it, you hear you know the lead guitar stuff, and you start thinking, well, you know, Ace is kind of stretching out here. He's like, he's really going off, and he's Ace burning is, here. Ace <laughs> is doing some crazy bends and expanding <laughs> yeah. his palette. Yeah. You know, and of course, you know, was was Bob Kulick, but nonetheless, you know, because you know, obviously, Ace didn't play on uh, All American Man, Larger Than Life, and um, uh, Rockin' in the USA. Right. You know, when it comes to the lead guitar stuff, and there's a funny story that I read. Um, I forget what book it's in, but I guess when you know Bob was cutting solos, I believe it was for this record. Uh, Gene and Paul, you know, they'd be in the studio doing overdubs, and Gene and Paul wouldn't talk after he he did a take. So Bob would play a solo, and you'd look in the control room, and Gene or Paul would be sitting with a Kiss doll, and he'd either move the the Kiss doll's head like yes or no. And that was his, <laughs> that was his thing. But, you know, no, another take. You know, so you know. Whether they're even funny, I would hope so. Uh, but you know, I, I, I do find a few books that's it. At the time. Yeah. yeah, right. Pressure. Okay, I've got to record a solo, and they're not even speaking to me. Hello, I'm not, I'm bombing. I'll <laughs> decide my fate. <laughs> that's great. Um, so yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, I think that Bob did such an amazing job because. Although listening to it now, having played guitar for decades, you can say, okay, this some of this stuff wasn't really within Ace's wheelhouse, and clearly it's another player. But at the time, it was close enough to Ace's wheelhouse that I don't think the average fan listening to this would have said, you know, well, that's not Ace Fraley, that's some other, you know, what is what is going on here? Yeah. Um, I think this song, uh, there's there's what they call demos floating around on on YouTube. I don't think they're really demos. I think they're uh, alternate mixes or rough mixes of of these songs. I think the only true demo I found was actually for Rockin' in the USA, which is clearly a Gene demo. Um, but but this song and Rockin' in the USA, I have to think were probably written with the bicentennial in mind. Um, hmm. because if you think about it, 1976, like everything was oriented towards the bicentennial. It was like, if you went to the circus, it was the Ringling Brothers celebration of the bicentennial. And, you know, there's that famous picture of Kiss with the, uh, the bloody tourniquet and the American flag and, you know, mimicking the, the classic image of the Revolutionary oh, right. War. Um, yeah. So you mean they painted on the bus stops for 1976. Do you remember that? What did they paint them? Red, white, and blue. Yeah, red, white, and blue, and they had like flags on them. I, it's one of my weirdest memories of my childhood is like waking up one day and seeing all the bus stops with all the little things painted <laughs> with uh, red, white, and blue and flags and stuff like that. Yeah. Now like the, it, yeah. the other interesting aspect about this song and all these songs is Kiss has played them, but they've played like no none of them more than you know. I think the most they played any of these songs is four times. Um, you know, mostly they played them on the Kiss Cruise or the Kiss Convention or maybe a one-off casino show or once at Kobo. I mean, collectively, I think they've played these all five of these songs about 11 times, you know. Wow. So, and yet it's, there's nothing about this song, I think, that, that wouldn't lend itself to being a great live song. I agree. Um, and I think at some point when it comes to All-American Man, there is a, a story in the Kiss Alive Forever book, which is basically the complete touring history up to, I think it's about the year 2000. Uh, there is a fan account of someone being in the front row, I believe it was on what would have been the Alive 2 tour, uh, where All-American Man was in the set list that he could see. I think it was stage left. And uh, apparently right before the show, came, you know, the show started, Rody came out and scratched out 
you know, with a marker, all American man from the set. So really, yeah. So I guess it was, yeah. And I guess, you know, the fans heart sort of dropped. I thought, wow, I'm going to hear all American man live. Nope. 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 Ah, okay. Yeah. So if, if you believe that it was in consideration for at least one show. Interesting. Very interesting. So then we have the, you know, I, I often think Gene and Paul try to write songs about the same subject and see who can do it better. So now we have Rockin' in the USA. There is an actual demo of the song floating around uh, on YouTube. And it's interesting because there's a part of the song that, that they dropped, which is, I mean, the song itself is a little cornball, but would have made it even more cornball, where it's essentially where they go, uh, you know, USA all the way, you know, and I'm just like, oh, God, oh. all right, that was a good choice to lose that because it's really, um, it doesn't add anything to the song and, in fact, kind of takes away from it. Uh, <laughs> you know. I, I've never heard that. I've only heard, again, on the uh, the Lost to Life 2 CD, there are demo versions or at least, you know, other mixes of these songs on this CD with, uh, different guitar licks in terms of the lead guitar work. Yes. Uh, but I think the vocals are essentially the same. Um, and again, thank you, Dave, for introducing me to this, you know, on a cassette 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, that, that I've never heard that version of it, though. I'll, I'll, I'll look that up for sure. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always a sucker for, you know, hearing a, a bad version of, of a good song. You know, so. Yes, yes. And that is kind of <laughs> kind of what this is. It's also the only Kiss song, and I would say one of the few... Uh, rock songs ever to actually feature around, which is essentially what the chorus becomes, where they're singing, you know, rocking and a rolling, and the other guy's rolling and a rocking, and then they meet on in the USA, which you know, not not a common thing in, unless you're singing a German drinking song. I mean, <laughs> well, on that subject, you know, I've I've tried to play this song live um, in tribute bands, and it's. It's not worth all the effort. There's so much going on with the vocals that you, there's so much counterpoint going on that you can't, you know, the guitar is like dropping out just playing an E chord for a second and the other guy's doing da 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 and, you know, CD. But, you know, to pull it all together musically and then do the round, you know, of the vocals is just about impossible live. Yeah. As much fun it would be to do that. So, you know, we played that song. Well, you know, no wonder you never hear anybody play the song because it's just about impossible to do. And I think of all these songs, this is the one they've never tried to play live. As far as I know, yeah. I mean, you would, maybe, maybe, I don't even know if they tried to play it on the convention tour. Who knows? But I doubt it. I mean, I, I could check. But you know, either way. I think one of the most classic, underrated Gene songs of all time, Larger Than Life, obviously musically it owes a little bit to Mountain, but what a monster riff. And, you know, what a great, I mean, again, Kiss kind of taking the piss out of, uh, when people back then would refer to them as larger than life superheroes and things like that, you know, turning everything into a sexual double on, on Tanje. And it's got such, such attitude and musically goes to some really interesting, unexpected places. Bob Kulik shines. Supposedly that's Gene playing the rhythm guitar. And I, I believe that because the, the, the rhythm guitar part is very very bass-like and very tight. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, another song that I would love to see them put into the live set. You know, it sounds like, you know, a live band should sound, you know, a live, you know, hard rock band that you know, is playing at that sort of volume. Um, and thankfully, um, it sounds like, but I, you know, 
again, one of the things that you know people overlook with Kiss is yes, it's heavy, um, but it's also crisp. But there's also a lot of space in the music, and this is another example of that. I mean, to hear this live would you know no wonder it was written by a band at this point that was used to playing large coliseums and outdoor venues where you've got that kind of space and you've got to deliver in a clean kind of way musically. Um, you know, so no wonder you know. It, it's easy to write a song on your couch or, or in your bedroom and you know, hope it's going to sound okay, but it's another thing to write a riff or a song idea in a, a huge, you know, open arena where there's there no there's no audience, it's just you and you know natural reverb in a large room. Uh, but you, I, I definitely agree. It's got to be Gene on, on rhythm guitar. It sounds like his sort of jagged but you know to the point you know rhythm guitar playing that is very uh, bassline like as well. Um, and then too, it was such a heavy song. You had the, the sort of breakdown. Uh, right before the solo, where you've got the you know the, the harmony vocal with with Paul, and it's kind of like a you know sort of it kind of slows down for a bit. You yeah, know? I but love again, that part because it's so against the expectations of what you're where you're thinking the song is going to go. Yeah, and then you get this huge drum fills and boom. Okay, here's a solo. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. Great song. Songwriting structure is uh, fantastic. Even though you know these are just you know let's say I wouldn't call them throwaway tracks, but it's something that was maybe added to the record, you know as you know, a last minute thing if they're trying to meet contractual obligations. I don't know in terms of having new material on a record. Um, but either way, I mean, these are all great songs. Who wouldn't be proud to, you know, to have written a song like that? And that bend by Bob Kulik, the original, the initial bend just rips your head off. I mean, it's so, it's, the, the attack is so precise and it's, uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Bob, you know, he, he was an amazing musician. Absolutely. And it's funny on, on the outtakes version or the quote unquote, demo version that they call it on YouTube. Um, you can hear they experimented with him doing some licks during the verses. Uh, mm -hmm. It didn't really work. I don't, I'm not surprised that they dropped it. The other controversial thing about this song is who is playing the drums. And, yeah. you know, um, you hear different stories. I know Mark Cicchini has said that he talked to a couple of people that were there and it was definitely not Peter, but they won't say who it was. Um, you know, hmm. Gene has been interviewed and saying, no, actually this was Peter and Mark's take on this is apparently, well, Gene was saying that to placate Peter. And, you know, I, I, I suppose that's possible, but I, I can't hmm. think of any other instance where Gene has necessarily gone out of his way to give Peter any credit for something he didn't do. I mean, you know, he has, Gene hasn't been hmm. shy in recent years about talking about, you know, Peter not playing on anything except one track on Dynasty, Peter not playing at all and unmasked. So why Gene would, you know, even during the reunion shows, go out of his way to say, oh, yeah, that was Peter. If it wasn't, I don't know. It's so weird to me how much they sort of all dislike each other. You know what I mean? How much, you know what I mean? And how about some, sometimes they'll cover and, you know, they talk a lot about keeping... Um, this is one of those things where it's like, do I really want to know how the sausage is made? You know, do I really want to know how much these guys were going at it at the time that they were recording this stuff and who was actually playing on it and all this, you know, what is a contractual thing that they had to do versus, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, why wouldn't Peter Chris play on those songs? Like, what was he doing? Why wouldn't they make him do it? That's his job, you know? makes me sad inside, I guess, is the best way yeah. to say it. And to your, to your point, John, you know, I agree. I just had a conversation with my sister this morning because she's a huge you know, music fan and particularly a kid's fan as well. And, you know, 
we were talking about other bands and how, you know, sometimes you're better off not knowing the drama behind one. And, you know, and I understand that, you know, it kind of takes away some things. But, you know, obviously as, as KISS fans and musicians, you know, some of us are, you know, some people are more interested in what's what's behind the song and, and where it came from and who's on the track, you know, because maybe there are, you know, this does sound different than songs or, you know, recordings of, you know, tunes on Love Gun and Rock and Roll Over. Um, but if you try to anal analyze in a way, I don't think uh, Ace knew Anton Fig at this point because he was introduced to Anton after the Alive 2 tour um, by, I believe, Eddie Kramer and uh, one of the other fellows that wrote songs on Ace's solo album. So if anybody mm -hmm. was on this record, it wouldn't be Anton Fig. Interesting. I mean, you know, um, and I don't know who else in, you know, in the, in the, the drummer, you know, um, world at that time that Kiss would have been working with unless it was one of the guys that was on Paul's records because he did Carmen at Peace and uh, Craig Kemp. But you know, I don't think those guys were in the equation. But there's a, to me, there's a big difference when you're planning a, a tracking session and you know, your lead guitar player doesn't show up that day or he's you know MIA for some reason. You get another guitar player come in, bring their guitar, they plug in, they're good to go. You know, drums are a whole different beast. If I was a drummer, I wouldn't want to be playing on somebody else's kit if I got called into a session. You know, so... You know, I don't know who else it could have been on these tracks. I'll say this: the playing is definitely a little more aggressive. Yes. Um, than what we've heard in terms of the, you know, the run performance on uh, studio records prior. But you know, and, and I tried to do the research too to see if it's if it was Anton even on Ace's track, which we'll, we'll talk about next. Okay. But I don't even I don't you know I think that's one of the the, the clear examples where Kiss has always said no. You know, Peter definitely played on Rocket Ride. Yeah. And, you know, they've never sort of you know backed down from that. Okay. I don't know. I don't know who else it would. Be. If there was anybody, I wouldn't know who it would be. But you know, my gut tells me that it was, it was definitely Peter on these tracks playing drums. Okay. Well, you know, who knows? I, I if if it is Peter, it's Peter. You know, trying to channel John Bonham in a way that he hadn't done before. Um, but yeah. you know, mm -hmm. at, the, at the same time, as much as people love to write off Peter and say, "Oh, you know, he." It wasn't capable of doing something like this. Then I listened to Kiss Symphony, where it clearly is Peter, and you know Peter actually steps up and plays really well throughout Kiss Symphony. You know, uh, to a degree that you know, for everybody that was saying like, "Oh, he's not half the player he used to be. He couldn't pull this off." It it kind of makes you wonder, you know, that he may have been capable, especially at this time, of things that that people didn't think he could do. Hmm. I think there's a prejudice against him that's out there. I, you know what I mean? In, I don't know. I don't think particularly maybe in fans, but definitely from the band itself. I sometimes feel like he doesn't get his, his share of the credit that he should get, but yeah. I don't know. So then we go on to rocket ride, which is a phenomenal track. Um, a much more sophisticated song musically than Shock Me. Um, Ace pulls it off, and another amazing extended guitar solo. You know, Ace has talked about his guitar solos and how most of them he was kind of improvising, but clearly on Shock Me and Rocket Ride, he really takes the time to work these parts out. Um, the alternate mix that exists of this song is kind of interesting. Um, the, the vocal kind of release if you will after the every two lines in the verse where he says take a rocket ride is missing and mm -hmm. uh and you really miss that i mean it really yeah. sounds like it needs something to fill that gap um just a, a brilliant song you know it, it's funny because as much as all these these kiss songs are sort of fuck me suck me songs um 
you know, I think of the Nikki Six quote, we're intellectuals on a crotch level. And, you know, I, I've said this before, but <laughs> it, it's one thing to write a great song about a su one great song about one subject. It's another thing to write a hundred great songs about the same subject. And I would say this falls into that category. Um, Mike, I see you have your guitar. Uh, you know, this is a song that, you know, I, as a kid after buying this record, I, I would I would was hoping they would have played it on the Dynasty Tour. It was such a strong track, you know, whether or not, I mean, but anyway, it, it's, to me, it's, you know, when you we look at Ace's songwriting in, in, in the history of the band, he's had his, you know, songs like Parasite and Cold Gin, but he hasn't necessarily sang those songs in a band context. Um, but then you come out, if, if you're coming in swinging with a song like, you know, Shock Me and, and Rocket Ride, I mean, those are well-structured songs. Um, you know, he's, he's got this sort of sense of humor in his delivery of the lyric, you know, and I've, I've read stories too, where I guess, uh, you know, Ace has, been, uh, Ace has said that, you know, he and um, Sean Delaney, who was the co-writer of the song, were sort of in the, the vocal booth singing vo uh, background vocals together, sort of laughing and smiling, and just, you know, must have been having a great time and just enjoying the, you know, you know, the, the lyrics that he came up with and putting that, you know, down on tape. Um, but, you know, again, you know, just like, there's so many great things that are so true to Ace's style in this song. I mean, his playing on the rhythm parts are great. Um, the solo itself, which is uh, uncommon for Ace, he's using a Vox Walla pedal. Yeah. Um, that he, I guess he didn't really start using again in recordings until uh, his uh, 78 solo record. Uh, but then just in terms of Ace's approach to, to rhythm guitars, and Dave and John, you know this too, when you're coming up with a line, there's nothing more boring than just playing like a chromatic riff. What Ace does in the build-up before the solo, he's got this whole thing going on where he's, you know, you know, climbing up the neck, and you can hear his mm -hmm. string is basically hitting the pickup, which gets this really clicking percussive sound. Right. Yep. Then he'll overdub, you know, the fifth, and then by the time he gets to the next round, he adds a third. You know, I mean, oh, there's a the guy okay. that carries cared about his guitar parts, you know, and then it comes into that blistering solo, and then the acapella solo at the end is just blues. You know, he's just, it's so, I mean, he's such a, a blues player. He's so Jimmy Page influenced and Clapton influenced that, you know, it comes across, and you, know, you can tell he, he, he did his homework. He's not just playing, you know, you know, just yeah. I, I won't. I wouldn't mention you know the guy's name, but you know some people will just you know try to play like a Chuck Berry style lead mm -hmm. and just kind of hammer away. Whereas Ace, you can tell he definitely did, did his homework and planned these solos out um, in one way or another. And it's a, it's a, it's a great way for you know, Ace to have another track on the record. And thank goodness it's there. But when you think about this too, um, I think we mentioned or it's been mentioned during discussions about Love Gun records. You know, that's known as basically the last time the band recorded together. Well, that's not necessarily true. This was the last time the original lineup um, recorded you know new songs together. Right. Because right. you get to Dynasty Unmasked, you know, it's a different drummer, and you know, you know, is Gene playing? You know, is Ace playing bass on all of his songs? And you know, that's a whole other discussion. But really, this is the last time that the original band uh, you know sort of performed together um, in a studio type situation with new uh, original material. And as you and I both know, this is not an easy song to pull off live, even though Ace has done it fairly regularly as a solo artist. But the 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 timing of the chorus and whatnot is really yeah. kind of odd. And, you know, uh -huh. um, this song was released as there were two singles from this album. There was a live version of Shout It Out Loud and there was this. This song actually charted higher than the live version of Shout It Out Loud, both in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. And, you know, I, 
that that's not necessarily it's I, I wouldn't be surprised by that but i know for a fact that i was in my dad's Datsun in 1978 and we were driving around you know my hometown swissvale and i know that i heard this song on the radio which probably would have been 13 qam radio uh but i know for a fact that i heard this song uh, as yeah. a kid on the radio so if, if it was a single you know it, it got its airplay i remember hearing it for sure nice yeah yeah it's the it's the best one of the five new ones it's reasonable again i love his delivery of the lyrics is so i love that ace fairly laconic just throwing the lines out there you know what i mean like he's throwing you know seeds to birds in the park or whatever i mean it's just really <laughs> i love the way that he sings because he, he almost like he doesn't care but he still you know gives it enough uh feeling behind it that you're like oh i mean yeah no it's it's my favorite of the five even though i had didn't hear one of them Right. Well, it's it's like the that, that joke about the bulls and the cows where like the two, you know, there's the young bull and the old bull and they and they say, you know, hey, you know, uh, the young bull says we could run down there and I bet you we could score a cow, you know, and and the old bull <laughs> says or we could walk down there and score all the cows. Right. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's definitely a great song. It's one of my favorites on this whole album. For sure. So then a song, the closing song. Um, it's interesting. They were originally going to do Jailhouse Rock, supposedly. That was under consideration. Uh, and they dropped it because, uh, you know, a number of reasons. I think Elvis Presley had just died uh, right around the time they were doing this. They didn't, you know, they thought that might be in bad taste. So they ended up doing the Dick Clark Five, Any Way You Dave Want Clark. It. Uh, Dave Clark Five, sorry, yes. Uh, any Way You Want It. A uh, pretty true version to the original, um, no guitar solo, so probably Paul Stanley on all the guitars and all the harmonies. Um, you know, an early look at Paul's appreciation of this type of music. Um, Paul himself has said he, he doesn't really like this version that much. He felt like the original version, you know, was this, you know, a classic and uh, his version didn't really add anything to it. I mean, I don't know. It's it's similar. Um, it's interesting if you think about the fact that it's the Journey song around the same time, Any Way You Want It, that is the cadence of the way that Journey sings Any Way You Want It is exactly the same as the cadence mm. in the original uh, uh, Dave, Dave Clark, Clark 5, Five song. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So That's makes, interesting, yeah. Makes you That's, wonder. I, yeah, I never really thought about it, but yeah, it's true. Anyhow, summing up, final thoughts about Kiss Alive 2. To do with the, I'll be perfectly honest, I could do without. Aside from Rocket Ride, I could do uh, no need for any of the new live material. It's interesting that you guys like it so much. It's kind of throwaway for me, except for Rocket Ride, which I think is great. Um, but really, that's all I got to say about it. Also, it's the first album that they're obviously trying to grab sort of a younger demographic with the tattoos and the, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I think they're becoming more of America's band, you know, trying to get more, um, you know, they're, they're turning into like, like the Kiss doll, you know what I mean? They're, they're trying to be more marketable at this point, right? Isn't this where it's really exploding at this point? They're the biggest band in America at this, you know, from what we understand? Yeah, they are the biggest number one band uh, in Gallup, I think. Um, you know, it's funny, though, because if you look at the tour statistics, um, their peak initial peak of touring in the United States is rock and roll over. And even though the love gun tour and the alive Two tour are doing really, really well, 
they're you're starting to see you know they're not like 98 percent sold out everymore they're selling out most nights and you know when they're not selling out they're still packing the arenas but there is starting to be a hint of perhaps overexposure perhaps fatigue that you know hasn't really i think come to their attention yet um you know it's easy to write off like okay well you know it's the 70s the economy is starting to go downhill a little bit we're selling a few less tickets but it's still not really impacting us so hmm. things are about to go downhill very quickly but you know there's just a hint of it right now right isn't this the, this is their panic they're at their peak right now after this it's what the solo albums which do really poorly from what i understand and they sell what they sell like they're supposed to sell a, min a million a piece and instead they sell Half a million a piece or something. Well, yeah, they we'll, we'll get in, we'll get into that. We'll have to decide this podcast yeah. which solo album we want to tackle first, I guess, because uh, you know they sh they all shipped platinum. The joke is they shipped platinum and they and they returned <laughs> double platinum. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, right. Mike, final thoughts about Alive too? Sure. Um, let me also say too that you know thanks again for the opportunity to participate um, in these discussions. It's it's an honor and a pleasure, and I find I've it's rejuvenated my interest in kiss and i've never not been a kiss fan but i'm one you know 10 times even more so now thanks to this type of discussion with you guys so and it's great to you know to talk with you guys uh, being such long-term friends um but you know for me that's this is my this is probably one of the albums that i'm, I'm most happy to, to discuss because again it's the first record I ever bought um but then what this record represents in terms of kiss i mean there were so many firsts with the with the, the tour they recorded this record i think this is the first tour they used wireless guitars Okay. Um, after Ace had gotten shocked, they bought some uh, Schaefer or Navy wirelesses that they used. Um, and I remember too, um, you know, even though they did some of this on previous tours, there was always the thing you would read in articles like in Circus Magazine or Hip Raider or whatever at the time. Um, that, you know, like Ace, when he did does his guitar solo in, in Shock Me, you know, he leaves the stage and the guitar plays itself. And I thought, wow, I got to see what that's all about. Yeah. You know, but behind the scenes, really what's happening is, you know, the guitar smokes. He said he's got an Equiflex going and a harmonizer and a phaser, and the guitar's on the stand. And he comes out and he you know sort of blows the guitar up with explosives, and you know that's the guitar playing itself. You know while he plugs in another guitar, and comes out and finishes the solo. But you know what a great you know piece of journalism, journalism you know to, to sell the show that way. You know, I was sold. Like I want to see a guitar play itself. Yeah, to a to a little <laughs> kid hearing that, you're like, how is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> how could that happen? And then great to see that, that they use um, the, the use of hydraulics, you know, with the list in the front of the stage. Uh, Dory, I think, loved going in at the end of, the, of uh, Black Diamond. But also the use of the descending balconies that I think they debuted on the Paul Lynn Halloween special. Mm. Uh, the introduction of oh, Sam yeah. the Serpent uh, stage right on Gene's side. And I think this is the first time where not only did Peter's drum rides are elevate, but it also moved forward and then elevated. So, okay. you know, again, they were upping their, their, uh, their game in terms of the live presentation. But yes, uh, to John's point, too, about uh, the merchandising definitely merchandising here was you know starting to, to really go um you know a different direction you had the t-shirts those belt buckles and then you know, the other things to follow but even the merch that they had for the tour i mean you had like these oversized tour books that were for sale i mean this thing is huge i mean this is like you know they, when you say this is a coffee table book this is bigger than my coffee table it's huge. <laughs> yeah oh so, yeah but you know in terms of the merch they had these cool shirts you know the, the i was there shirts that were at, available at the uh, at the forum but on that subject, too, um, I was mentioning that it'd be great, you know, and you know, maybe a dream to see an expanded version of Alive 2 come out with, the, you know, with other tracks that were recorded around the time that, you know, these shows were recorded. 
But if you look at the footage from, uh, it was an NBC special with Edwin Newman. It was uh, The Land of Hype and Glory was the title of the, the interview segment. And they featured, you know, different genres. They featured like music or, you know, or, 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 you know literature. You know, they, you know, they really get in three different perspectives. But point being, uh, if you look at the footage, the live footage that they used for, this, uh, for that interview segment, uh, it's all footage from the forum. So okay. it was either, I believe it was his first night because I know the first night Gene's costume had some horns that you didn't see extending from the top of his costume that uh, apparently that night, the first night at the forum, he breathed fire and lit his hair on fire, you know, like has happened before. But supposedly the, the next night at the forum, those horns were, were gone from his costume, I guess due to the problems he had with breathing fire, those gotten away. But point being, I think the footage is from the first night because you see the horns in Gene's costume. But the, the only reason I bring the, any of that up here, and this is all close with, is yes, they could do an expanded version of Live 2 uh, in terms of vinyl or CD, but it appears to me that they have footage from that entire show. I mean, there are so many songs throughout the set that they have complete footage of yeah. uh, from beginning to end. You know, they could absolutely, if there's one show that they should release on DVD or some other medium, this should be the one. And it, they've got the footage because NBC did the interview. It's a licensing thing. I don't know. Yeah. But man, I would love to see that in, in, in a full yeah. presentation. But it, yeah, again, my my favorite record, my my the first record I ever bought, and you know, it's the reason I'm doing anything musically, um, you know, period. So yeah, great album in my opinion, my favorite, and great to be able to discuss this record with you guys. Those those horns, you can see them in the photo of Gene in the Evolution of Kiss, right? They're kind of like leather horns, and they almost they have like kind of a blue hue because of the the way the lights shine off them. I believe if that's if we're talking about the same thing. Uh, it might be. I think it's in the center picture. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it's yeah. It almost looks like he's wearing like a shoe on the back of his shoulder. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. It's yeah. a weird look. I'm I'm not sorry that they dropped it because it just looks odd. It doesn't. Yeah. I don't know what you know why he would have horns on his shoulders. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's what I want to hold on my shoulder. I don't know. Yeah, but it definitely. I think it's yeah. It's in the center pole of the evolution of Kiss booklet. Yeah. All right, so let's pick our, the album that we're going to do next week. I think, Mike, in honor of having you as the uh, third member of Rock Album Analysts, we got to start with arguably the best of the solo albums and work our way down from there. I, I think we got to do Ace next week. Count me in. I'm so log after that, man. Yeah. <laughs> Twist my arm. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, or Spotify. Uh, be sure to like us, follow us, and uh, give us a review. Uh, much appreciated, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks a lot. Take care, everyone. All right, take care, guys. Bye-bye.